coming up this week on S4C. Good bit of football action. Not all live, but uh, plenty to watch. Monday, 5.35 or 25 to 6 to you clever people out there. The usual, every Monday, doesn't matter when you listen, when you watch, you can catch up with us during the seasons. We've got the highlights of the Welsh Premier League action with Morgan Jones, who will narrate you through the programme, through all the goals. And then on Wednesdays, Moya Scoria at 6.30, Dolan Ebenezer presenting loads of quirky little items, little interviews with different people from within the football world. This week, I'm on the sofa with TNS legend Aaron Edwards, so tune into that one. And then the live game this week, oh, Friday night action. What a beautiful thing. We've got the last game of the real season, if you like, before the playoffs. We've got Koneski looking to cement second place and European football without going through the playoffs. Travelling to Kevin Druids. So that should be a good game. Quarter past seven on air, 7.30 kickoff. Join us. What have you got that can top that. Nothing. I guarantee you. I don't care what you've got. Eating out. Going for a few pints. Nah. Sorry. Get yourselves comfy on that sofa. 7.15 on Friday. Well, hello. And welcome back to the Longman's Football World Podcast. With myself, Owen Tidir Jones. This week, the guest is none other than a former Northern Ireland international. Played, well, he started off at Spurs, moved to Norwich, had a, had a couple of years spell at Luton before coming back and retiring with Norwich. No injuries, retired, retired young, um, but you know it wasn't forced upon him. It was. He's the type of guy who, maybe not your stereotypical footballer, he had one eye on the future. And instead of dragging his heels in, in the professional game so longer than he felt was necessary, um, he, he decided to give it up, move on to other things. And although he didn't have anything lined up straight away, he's, uh, he's built himself up, works really hard. He's a keynote speaker that travels the world. Um, mainly gets over to America and, and it's a brand that continues to grow works specifically for a, a company called Mindspan with uh, with, a, with a really intelligent man called Gavin Drake where they, where they basically work on mental performance I mean it's, it's certainly not basic but uh, they, they, they do a good job of it whether that's within the sporting world or the business world anybody really can, can speak to them attend their seminars and uh, it's it's a really fascinating a fascinating insight talking to this man uh, about that world what what he hopes for the future uh, the, the fact that although physically footballers especially sports people uh, work you know on their training physically but not many tap into the mind and that's what this man does so hopefully you enjoy this conversation with Paul McVeigh. He likes to tell you if anyone will listen about his seven caps, his chocolate knees, his distinct lack of pace. Now it's a long shot.
Paul McVeigh. This must be a huge honour for you, the long man's football world. You've been desperate for this appearance for a while, haven't you? <laughs> well, we had to, once we sorted out the terms and conditions, got the rider sorted out. The wages. Invoice has already been sent off, although I don't know how I ended up just paying for your lunch. Um, <laughs> it sounds like that's sort of, maybe you've been using some sort of reverse psychology on me and... Uh, I'm I've used psychology against you, your own tools. <laughs> and I've ended up um, inviting you along to the session I did today, then paid for your lunch and now doing your podcast for free. How's that work? I have travelled about That's true. what felt like last night, about 800 miles. Yeah, yeah. But you're worth it, mate. Well. For the catch-up. Oh, well. And also it just happens to be that Nari's in Cardiff are playing this weekend, so. Do you know what? I promise you, I would have come anyway. Okay. I would have come to you. What, what, what are we calling it? A seminar? Uh, yeah, workshop, seminar, whatever. Sort of whatever you want to. So give us a, give us a brief description um, what, what you're doing now. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll get into how you got into it in terms of the football uh, to the real world transition. But what sort of things are you getting up to? Um, so it's funny because that, that question, whenever I get asked it, it's it's generally not the easiest question to answer only because you know if you meet an accountant and say what do you do they say I'm an accountant and everybody's like yep I get that I know what that is and whenever I get asked that question depending on the kind of person that's asked me it and the outcome I want from the my answer that I give depends on where I go with the answer because there's there's quite a few things I've, I've ended up doing so since I um, stopped kicking ball around about eight years ago now I decided to work in the kind of mental performance area. Mm. So from from my point of view, I was just fascinated whenever I was playing, you know, from reading my first book on it, on the subject at 17, and by a guy called Tony Robbins, who, you know, some people might know as you're looking around the house, it's on the, it's on the bookshelf there. I noticed it, yeah. So this guy is, the best way to describe him is, is he's, he's almost like a kind of personal development guru. So anyone who's into that area would know of Tony Robbins, Anthony Robbins. Just he's pretty much one of the most exceptional people that sort of ever walked this planet in terms of where he's come from, what he's done with his life, who he helps, how successful he's been, the level of people he works with. So he's worked probably with the last kind of five presidents through to working with the US Army, through to the CEO of Sony, through to... I think it's something like about five, six million people individually have attended his seminars as well as, you know, everything else that he does in his world. So just an absolute genius, really, in yeah. that area. So, and I, and I read the book on him. It was ironically, considering what size are you? How tall are you? Six five. Six five, and I'm five six. And the book that I read was called Awaken the Giant Within. And I was like, I could do some of that. That would help me. Yeah. And um, So basically, because the book's so, so thick and fat, it means you can stand on it <laughs> and get closer to me. It, it honestly just opened my eyes. I remember reading it. And I can remember the inscription of my friend who gave it to me. Um, it was like, to your success, November 95, Tim. And I just was read, read it when I was in the first year youth team at Spurs. And just going, just like a complete wow, like a metaphorical and a physical and literal wow, because it, it it pretty much the way the book was written, um, you could sum it up in in one sentence of you know everything that you will ever need in your life going forward, you've already got within you, 
And I remember just reading that and just thinking, that's just blowing my mind as a 17 year old from Belfast. So you're reading that book at, at 17. Was it a conscious thing? Did you just stumble upon the book or, or were you already planning, you know, mental performance? You, you're talking about how it would help you career-wise on the pitch. Was it something you were looking for that little edge or was it just by chance? It, it, well, you'd probably call it by chance. I wasn't looking for it because it's it's an awareness thing. If you don't realise it exists, then you can't do anything for it, you know. It's almost like it's, I didn't know that I didn't know that I had any any lack of knowledge in, in mental performance or mm. psychology. So it was just because it was as a friend of mine who don't need to know the story, but I, I, I met a guy who's a really nice fella. And, you know, 30 years later or 25 years later, he's like one of my best friends and just almost became like a bit of a surrogate dad for me as a 16 year old coming to the bright lights of London from Belfast and just going, I have no idea what I'm doing here. But he offered me this book after six months of being there and completely it was a game changer. So whenever he offered me this, I read it and then started implementing it. Things like setting goals for myself, things like um, imagining or visualizing or at least picturing where you might want to be in mm. a certain number of years time. And, and you know, for the last 25 years, I've been doing it every single kind of year of my life because it's just so ingrained in me now that I always am looking ahead of what I want to achieve. and. You know, the fact that, you know, sort of sitting here now as a 40-year-old man, it I can say probably anecdotally, it was down to reading that book of all the different yeah. things that I've done in my life. You and I both, we, we've lived, you know, in inside the football bubble, if you like. When you're that young kid and you're reading books of this kind, are you spreading the word? You know, I, I know you're a, you're a confident guy and, and stuff like that. You You don't really... Or when I first met you, didn't really care what other people thought about you, but probably back then more than now, reading books like that would have looked as weird. If, weird. Yeah, it would have looked strange. <laughs> you know, you, it, it yeah. wasn't the norm. Footballers are almost like sheep. They 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 like to follow, um, even though maybe in their in their private time they don't. Mm -hmm. But they don't want to, you know, for people to know something that could become a weakness. Can admit it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was. I, I probably, again, looking back now, trying to analyse it, I probably realised that it was, I did want to have a, a kind of a positive influence on people, but not realising that that's really what my intention was. And you saying that, you know, the fact that, that we met whenever I was kind of, you know, last year of my playing days. So obviously you're a completely different animal from in your first couple of years. And so I read it and thought, this is amazing. What can I do about it? As opposed to wanting to positively influence. And you know, when you think about it, or when I think about it now with the work I've done kind of the business and corporate world now, it's, it's really kind of leadership thing. So that whenever you're becoming a leader, it's all about developing yourself because you want to be the best and you want to be the example and you want to show what you can do. But actually, once you become a leader, it's then all about developing everyone else. And it's not about you because you're not important. You sort of get over yourself, I think, is, is the best way of describing it. Yeah, You become less self-centered because you know that you can't do these things by yourself and you need all of this help and support. So, so nowadays, you're trying to go across different businesses, spreading the word about positive mindset and stuff like that. How, how I different would say, is it? I would say a positive mindset, I would probably rephrase that or reframe it in terms of mental performance. Just because, you know, what I touched on this morning in the, in the workshop is just that positive mindset or being positive can sometimes have a negative kind of connotation 
just because not everybody thinks being positive is a good thing. So I don't want to even begin to start a conversation or an argument that someone might take it in a negative way. And so I would say it's all about how are you thinking effectively or are you thinking constructively to be able to allow you to achieve what you've decided you want to do. So give me an example of how sometimes thinking positively can can be taken as a negative. Um, just because people will say that there's, you know, there are so many things that happen in their lives, like if someone passes away or losing a job or breaking up from a relationship, you know, you're thinking, especially if it's not your choice or it's out of your control, people will say, well, there's nothing to be positive about that. And, and it's, you're right, it's not, there's loads of things that aren't positive in the world. It's probably more to do with, especially as a kind of, as a sportsman or woman, you would need to understand that the events in them, in and of themselves are actually neutral. And this is a this is a big thing that I learned you know over the last number of years is that anything that happens in our lives is actually neutral. So for instance, great example, someone scores a goal in a match. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, actually, if you're the home team and your home team scores, probably a good thing. But if you're the home team scores and you're a away fan, it's not a good thing. So it's a bad thing. Mm. Are there some people who turn up to a match at wherever they are around the country and the home team scores or the away team scores and they simply don't care because they're just there for a jolly. Yeah. Absolutely. So actually the goal in and of itself has no meaning. It's almost it has no intrinsic meaning. Because ultimately it's just a guy or, or a woman kicking a ball into a net. Into an, a wooden thing yeah. with a little bit of a net thing across a white line that some guy's painted. It's just been built up into this event. But what happens is in society, in people's lives, we will give meaning to everything in our lives. And we will give it in a good way or a positive way or a constructive meaning or an effective meaning or helpful meaning. Or we will make it into a negative, less than helpful. So for instance, whenever I was released from Tottenham Hotspur after six years of being there, George you, you, Graham. You never mentioned you were at Spurs. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for maybe for the people in Wales who maybe have come across this podcast, they might not have known, so just wanted to drop that in, just as a <laughs> level of credibility. Um, but, you know, whenever after six years, George Graham told me it was too small, I'm going, you know, absolutely gutted, yeah. thinking I'm going to be released. And then realising, fast forward 15 years later, realising that every club I've ever been to, I got released from. So you actually end up being quite good at dealing with being released yeah. until it becomes well, actually, if I can turn this into a constructive thing or if I can use this as a motivator, and a lot of my career I felt was a motivator that proved George Graham wrong because he said it was too small to play in the Premier League. Yeah. And, you know, whenever you play in the Premier League, you're like showing them certain hand signs and hand signals that go, see, George, you were wrong. Yeah. So you'll go across businesses trying to help performance, trying to improve their mental performance. Uh, I saw an example of it this morning mm -hmm. and we, we were just discussing how Maybe I, you, we're used to seeing people coming into a dressing room and speaking to you, whether it's uh, somebody from the outside or whether it's a manager trying to, trying to improve your performance with the way that they, they speak. But the, the general business people that we were with today, it was new to them. That, that's, that's the big thing that I realised. You were shocked, weren't you? I was really, because at the end of it, it was basically it was a two-hour... Um, taster, literally a taster, yeah, taster of what we do. 
um, you know, you're trying, you're trying to build yourself up so that they get you into their company. Absolutely, I'm trying to drum up business. It's all, it's literally sales Beautiful. pipeline. You know, and so for for instance, just so you have an idea, and so whoever's listening has an idea, to be able to say that the people who came to this room today are people from the likes of Barclays, the likes of NatWest, the likes of Grand Thornton, the likes of Marsh, which is a massive insurance broker. You know, huge, huge companies in the room. Even like another friend guy from UK Credit, which is like Amigo Loans, turn over millions and millions and millions of pounds every month. And they've never come across this stuff before. Yeah, it, because at the end you were asking for their feedback and stuff and, mm-hmm. and they were openly and it wasn't a blag. I know a blagger when I see one. <laughs> You've done enough of them, too. <laughs> I've done enough of that. Um, they, they were saying this is almost life-changing, yeah. you know, in terms yeah. of having this this way of thinking. So it's, it's a brilliant thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also go into football clubs and, and try and help out young players as well. Well, I, I think, so again, going back to the very start of the question you asked me, it's, it's I definitely started working in the corporate world, you know, because that was almost the option and the invitation I got. So a guy called Gavin Drake, who um, was a sports psychologist with Norwich, who both of us know, and I've known Gavin for, you know, 10 years or more. And he was doing this work in the corporate world, and I knew him from being a sports psychologist at Norwich. So that really was the first avenue of of sort of what I was doing when I stopped playing. But then because I was doing it in the likes of the, you know, professional service of solicitors, accountancies, and I'm going NHS, and I'm going, why am I doing this to like, you know, a bunch of accountants? Really, I should be doing this in the football world because it's, you know, it's it's the stuff that I never got, but I think it would help me. And so Gavin and I were like, brilliant, why don't we? So we started working with Norwich, worked with our youth team and, and the first team for a couple of years. Um, and then I worked for Crystal Palace for the last five seasons. Um, and then again, it's after seven years, I sort of decided, right, okay, that's kind of enough of the football world because mm. obviously it's a it's a unique animal. It's a unique um, place to work. And I thought, that's great. And I've had my time. Not saying I won't go back into it, but it was just, it was enough. And so now I've just finished my master's and I just want to go back and work in the corporate world and, and pretty much doing what's called keynote speaking. So yeah. it's, it's what you saw today was more corporate training. So it's me standing delivering and getting people involved as opposed to the, the majority of the stuff that is keynote speaking where you're in front of 500 to 1,000 people and you're really there just to be kind of entertaining plus also give them some some, some kind of key messages. Insight into your career, your experiences. I, mean, no, le, le, I actually use less of my career just because, you know, I had a, an okay career and, I, you know, didn't win the World Cup, didn't win the Premier League. It's more just to show the kind of the the lessons and the kind of the the skills that a professional sportsman has and, and has, has built up and how they transpose and translate into the business hmm. arena because exactly what you said you know generally a lot of people from the business world have never come across this and when they do come across it it can be pretty hard-hitting for them will you will you see people individually because you, you mentioned gavin drake there who is your mentor mm-hmm. uh, i i saw gavin through the, you you gave me gavin's number didn't you i, I had my issues with injuries and mm-hmm. dealing with them overcoming them mentally um and sort of, you know, I only met Gavin maybe three, four times, even if that. And just, just how you change that mindset. Uh, I was going into games, wanting to get through the game unscathed. So instead of my focus being on playing well and, and somehow getting that natural ability, my, my, the natural ability that's in me mm-hmm. and enjoying it, it was just, don't get injured, Owen. You know, and, and, yeah. and he gave me affirmations to, to speak five sentences, positive sentences to, to speak to yourself yeah. internally. Is that the sort of thing that you'll do? 
Well, yes and no. I absolutely you use all those different skills or tools, and really it, it depends. You're available for anything, aren't you, Matthew? <laughs> you're, you're a whore. <laughs> whatever, whatever people might pay you for. No, but it, it is so funny because if you realise that probably, and you maybe didn't realise it, the fact that you were going into the game trying to get through it unscathed, thinking about that now, I would say probably your psychology or your mindset was in a kind of less than helpful direction. So if that's the case, the problem is if you're a professional sports person going into their event or into the game, not realising that, they sometimes need someone else to come and help them. They yeah. almost like give them this little bit of guidance. But of course, there are so many ways you can then help someone. So things like an affirmation, all it is is, if anybody doesn't know what an affirmation is, it's literally a positive statement about yourself. And it's sometimes I think it's a little bit sad that you almost need to come up or create an affirmation about yourself because we have this inherent negativity bias mm. that we're almost, we're not quite good enough or we're not quite, you know, able to do that job that we need to do or I'm not really the person that's able to earn £100,000 this year or whatever it is, we just generally have a negativity bias that's probably served us really well in kind of generations and centuries ago whenever we're, our lives were more in danger. Yeah. But because that's still quite part of our brain and our DNA, DNA that negativity bias, we take it into non-life-threatening situations and still have a negativity bias. So the fact is, if we are generally a species that is mostly negative, which has helped us in the past, but of course now going forward, we're not in danger. We need to be focusing more on what we do. And again, it's, it's, it comes back to performance. It's yeah. everything that I'm talking about is performance. And so what you're talking about is going into a game, trying to get through it unscathed. Maybe Cristiano Ronaldo, whenever he goes into a game, maybe that's not his mindset. Well, maybe. it's not always consciously. I think Absolutely, what, what, what I learned was, if I'm going into a game thinking, do not get injured, I am thinking of getting injured. Because the only you, thing, the only topic in that whole statement is injury. Yeah, so you take the do not out of it, yeah. you are thinking about an injury. And, and I remember Gavin using an, an example, if you're a parent or whoever, and, and a kid comes in holding a glass of water, he's probably used it with you, and the first thing you say is, do not spill that water. Often, they will spill the water because that's, that's what they'll focus on. So it's... Well, it, that's... So just to give you the kind of the science behind that, and again, not to try and, you know... I'm losing in listeners here. Impress you in any way, <laughs> but it's, it's more to do with the fact that the brain can't tell the difference between a, a do something and... So it's almost like the brain can't do it, don't. That's probably the best way to explain it. So even though you're talking about, I don't want to get injured still injury is the topic of that thought. Mm. Now, maybe at a kind of, if you were really to consciously break it down, you can say, yeah, but I'm thinking about not doing it. So I can, I know not to do that. But of course, because we're so kind of run by our subconscious, and again, all of this stuff that we're kind of throwing out here is, you know, very heavily backed up by research that tells us, you know, up to 98% of the time, our subconscious is running our lives. But if our subconscious has been drip fed by our conscious and our conscious is inherently negative, then you can see where your subconscious might take you and it's not always in the best possible place for yourself. Is football one of, if not the hardest um, business or you know, job for you to go into to try and change people's perceptions because of what we discussed earlier, how footballers are sheep? They, the, the participation from footballers within a group is not great to start with, is it? No. But I, I, I would say the opposite. No, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's the hardest and I think it's actually generally quite easy. 
only because exactly what you said, their shape. And so to give you an example, so I'll give you two examples, one of the sort of the coaching mentoring side and psychology side, and one I'll give you initially of the, when I was playing, that I had a conversation with my mum whenever I was on the phone when I was like 17, 18. And she just suggested that I should do yoga. I should do yoga because she thinks it'll help my football. Yeah. I'm having this conversation in 1995, whatever it was, with my mum, and she was like, you should do yoga. And I went, what, in a church hall with a bunch of middle-aged women? Nah, it's not really for me. And then she started going through the benefits, and she was like, but it improves your flexibility. Would that help your football? I was like, yeah, I suppose. And she goes, it reduces injury. Would that help your... <laughs> and it improves your core strength. And I was like, what's core strength? But anyway, so all these different things, and I'm going... Okay, well, I'll give it a go. Anyway, so I started doing it in 1995 when I was 17. Yeah. But like you said, having that positive influence on other people, I couldn't go into Tottenham Hotspur with my yoga mat and do it. I just didn't do it. Yeah. Because I wasn't brave enough to do it. Didn't have the cojones to go in and do it. Just with your yoga mat shouting to David Ginola. <laughs> yeah, Come on, David. David. Get on here, mate. He wasn't really up for that kind of stuff. <laughs> so then when I got to Norwich and I... Finally, after kind of, you know, a couple of years, felt like I was established, played, you know, 30, 40 games in the first team. I then decided, right, I'm not doing this at home anymore because that's all I did, dead at home so no one could see. I finally brought my yoga mat into the into the dressing room. What oh, do you I... think happened to it? <laughs> Cut up, burnt, thrown, thrown in the car park, driven over the top. So I literally brought it in, first time it was cut up. And I'm, you know, being a little arrogant, not arrogant, sorry, I'm a stubborn little bastard. I'm like, oh, they're going, there's no way these bastards are going to beat me. There's no way. So I'm like, in the second one, bought another one. That one got burnt. Then I bought another one. That ended up in the fridge or the freezer. Then I bought another one. Then they drove up. until eventually they just got fed up with doing things. They almost run out of ideas. Yeah. But I was still bringing them in, still doing my yoga. And I just did it to the side of the physio room. And then suddenly, after going all this kind of abuse you got, Suddenly, I'm still doing this after a couple of weeks, just as I'm about to start, one of the players just pokes his head in and goes, what are you actually doing in here? Yeah. And it's funny because there's these kind of three pillars of change and that first one is that abuse or almost like, you know, you, you, people who just have a go at you because you try and do something different. That's the first pillar of change. So that abuse I got, the people cut it up. Then the second one is really, it's, it's kind of a curiosity or an inquiring of like, so what is it? What are you doing there? What do you think happened at the end after doing it continuously? Joining it in Four or five of them were doing it with me every morning. And that was just something that I was like, this is brilliant, but I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for me because now I'm 40, still been doing yoga, not every day, but you know, on a regular basis for over 20 years. And considering we just had a lunch there with, um, with another former rugby player talking about a lot of injuries and, you know, absolutely gutted to hear the stories that you're talking about of your injuries. Because I'm sitting there almost going, well, I didn't really have any injuries. Yeah. And I actually got through nearly a 20-year career and I pulled one muscle injury. Yeah. And that was a thigh injury in a shooting session in pre-season we probably shouldn't have been doing. So it's not to say I'm any better. It's just to say that I was open to the idea of improving from an early age. My mum suggested it. I did yoga. I've been doing it ever since. And whether it's a coincidence or not, I've had one muscle injury in my life. And the dressing room were just looking for a weakness, as as the dressing room does. Always does. If you would have shown any sort of weakness, mm -hmm. or backed down in any way, shape, or form. If I had to stop bringing them in, yeah, then I would have been game over for me. And then by by the time you came back to Norwich for your second stint, you were still doing it. I remember. I can picture you now in your sloggies, <laughs> in your underpants, coming through the dressing room with your little yoga mat. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, by that stage, I I 
it was doing yoga but actually because i wasn't playing enough i only played like a few games in that last season because boys went on such an unbelievable run of like you know nearly 25 games um unbeaten and so because i wasn't playing a lot i then started doing these like little fitness programs and um these different exercises and almost uh almost like kind of a 90 day program of fitness so i was doing that in the in the weight room before people were coming in at like yeah. half eight because obviously there was just something in me that I just always looking outside the box and always looking because if you're doing the same as everyone else then you're going to get what everybody else gets and I'm just thinking my talent my size my strength isn't good enough I'm not going to be the best athlete so I need other ways and other approaches to do things that are going to give me a different outcome at the end of that season Norwich promoted from league one to the championship you decided to retire mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 32 mm-hmm. yeah so did you have a clear plan of what you wanted to do next no, not really. Um, but you had a clear plan of what you didn't want to do within the football world. Yeah, do you know what? I was really so interesting again. What we just did this morning was a bit of a kind of, this is what I don't want in my life and this is what I do want. And probably one of the reasons why I started the yoga was because I was, whenever I was a kid at Spurs, we had a, our captain was Gary Mabbott and he used to come on the physio room or into the physio room and he used to take him anything from 45 minutes to 60 minutes of prep strap-ins, wraps, tablets, injections, as you know very well. Welcome to my world. Welcome to your world, exactly. And as I'm saying that, I'm like, this is exactly what you did. (laughs) But this is because of what he did, and he's 36, but, you know, amazing to get to that level as a dad bad. He played six, 700 games for Spurs. But I also saw what a physical rack he was. And in my head, as a 16, 17-year-old, I looked at him, and I was like, there is no way, when I'm your age, I'm going to be like that. So at 32... I was thinking I could carry on playing because I'm physically fit enough to do it and I don't have the injuries to restrict me. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to go somewhere in some random part of the country to go and get a one-year contract on a certain amount of money that's probably not going to be um, very satisfying. So I'd rather stop here, go out on a high. We won the league. I'm in Norwich. I've had a great base here. I've loved this place and my brother was here and all the rest of it. And I just thought, this is a perfect time. So even though I'm stepping away from a very good income, great network structure, a job that I love for nearly 20 years and absolutely privileged to you know, do it to the highest level. I still thought, I've had my time, loved it, gonna move on and let's see what happens. Was there an element of you thinking, right, I blagged this last contract, <laughs> right? So you would have been 31, you were shocked beyond belief, you couldn't believe that you got this contract. Yeah. Especially because Brian Gunn thought I was 27. Gunny he... got your age wrong. <laughs> so tell us that story. You're on a, you're on an off season golf trip. Yeah. Well, so so I uh, effectively I'd Brank on and become the manager in Norwich City. I'd known him for years and years, and whenever I phoned him up to say I'm out of contract and say, listen, I'd love to come back if I can, and so he invited me up to Scotland on the pre season tour and sort of did okay up there. Scored you know the winner in one of the games. Yeah. And he basically. Went at the end of the week, he just said, listen, I'm going to speak to the board and I'm going to recommend that we can sign you. So he went in and fought my case to the board and pretty much <laughs> thought, he was like, so, you know, I think it's a really good time to get him, you know, even if we get him only a one year. Cause he's, he's in his tw- prime. He's only 27, 28. And they looked at him and they were like, you do know he's like 32 or nearly 32. And he's like, really? <laughs> so anyway, that's why they gave me the contract that did. So it was slightly reduced of what they were probably initially offering me. But I was delighted to have a second spell back at Norwich and you know because of all the good stuff that happened previously and back where 
you know, whereas kind of I'd always loved as well. So especially after the two years at Luton Town of yeah. being deducted 40 points in 12 month period wasn't exactly uh, the best football experience I've ever had. So the you, you start off leaving Ireland to go to Spurs. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? The only way you can describe it is a culture shock. You know, I'm sure it might be similar to yourself when you're coming from Bangor, you know, even to Swansea before you even went anywhere else. But growing up in Belfast in the 70s and 80s was, it's a war zone. You know, there's no other way to describe it. It's a bit like looking at what it's like in Syria or Afghanistan now. You look on there and I think, I would never go to those places. Yeah. They look so dangerous. But that's what Belfast was looking like in, in England. In but it was, the, it was the norm for you at the time or was it always, I want to get out of here? No, no. The last thing I thought was what I was thinking about getting out. The only thing I thought was I love football and I would love to play in the Premier League or in the top division if I could, thinking it's such a you know far-off dream. But then obviously you play football and suddenly says, oh, do you want to come on trial? Oh, do you want this contract? Oh, do you want to come and move to England at 16? And I'm like, yeah, why not? Not really thinking too much about it. Obviously realising on the last day before I left, my mum couldn't come out to the front door because she's inside crying her beans out because she knows she's never going to see me again. I'm never going to live in Belfast. And, yeah. But I don't know that as a 16-year-old, you know, naive kid. But suddenly walking from down in the, <laughs> in the high street in Belfast where it's literally white Irish people is the only way you can describe it or white Irish or British people, depending on your background. So literally white people. And there was one black guy in the whole of Belfast and he was in my class at school. Right. Just suddenly leaving that and walking down Tottenham High Road and having, you know, every nationality, every creed, every religion under the sun, all within like a kind of a 500 metre period. Just yeah. going, blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. And then you've got to adapt to it as quickly as possible because we, we discussed earlier how football changes, shapes your personality. Mm -hmm. Because you meet all these sort of different people from different places. Absolutely. And and again, it was still mostly in those days, it was mostly English people. And we had a couple of Irish people, one Welsh lad, Darren Davis, who's like still one of my best mates in football now. You know, he's over coaching in Melbourne and Australia, doing really well for himself. And yeah, it was just like, this is nuts, but it's just normal. So with the growing up in Belfast, where you've got tanks driving down your street, you've got soldiers walking past you with their M16s pointing at you. Do you want me to shoot you kind of thing and you're going yeah up yours or whatever else you know you're walking past that to suddenly coming across to london and doing that every day and suddenly that's normal until suddenly you're playing in front of 30 40 000 people every week and that's normal and then suddenly you're living in this house and going on this place to holiday and it's funny because it's just maybe because i have a, a quite a kind of humbled background or grounded background that everything now just seems like it's a bit of a joke yeah. i'm like Hold on a minute. So, for instance, I'll give you a really quick example. About two years ago, um, I was playing five-side, living in London, and one of the guys said, oh, my brother's a football agent, and he just wanted to speak to you. And I was like, okay, give him a number. So I spoke to him, and he goes, listen, um, I'm organising this trip to China, mm. and um, it's a bit like a kind of Premier League showcase. And I was like, you do not play three games in the Premier League. And he's like, doesn't matter. They won't know over there. <laughs> so he says, listen, if you want to, you can come on this trip. It's a week to China. Um, First-class flights, all expenses paid. We will give you X amount of thousand for the week, considering yeah. that was more than anything I'd ever earned in a week's wage at football. And by the way, your teammates are Paul Scholes, Michael Owen, Andy Cole, Lee Sharp, Stan Collymore, Marshall Desai, Michelle Salgado, 
do you want to go? <laughs> and I said, let me check my diary and just see if I'm available. <laughs> yep, I think I can make that one. But it's that kind of stuff where, because Belfast people are just massive blaggers, they literally, you know, they steal the milk out of your tea. They're just, they're just so, you know, they're amazing. But honestly, you just can't get one over on them because they're so sharp, so switched on. And whenever someone says something like that to you, you're like, yes, I think, yeah, I'll definitely do that. And that just seems to be the kind of stuff that happens in my life. And, and again, I don't know whether I'm the luckiest person on this planet or the most fortunate or privileged, but I definitely feel like that. Yeah. Because it's the same kind of things where, you know, last year, got a phone call from BN Sports here based in Qatar saying, do you want to come and spend a month in Qatar to work on the Euros? And by the way, we've got Kevin Keegan, Ruth Hulett, Graham Souness, and all these, and I'm not dropping names, it's just more the fact that I end yeah. up in these situations and I'm going, what the hell am I doing here? But, but It's so weird. But, so but, weird. Knowing you, you would have gone on those trips, whether it's being sports or going to China, and you would have felt comfortable in that environment. Mate, it's the best crack. Instead of being the nervous, shy one in the corner, no, no, no. speaking to these guys. and Listen, I, I, this is a perfect example. We flew, I flew from London, a couple of lads flew from Manchester, we went, flew to Dubai, picked up a couple of people. As we got to um, China and we're going through the airport, I'm walking through with Marcel Desai. Mm. Now, it's almost like the kind of Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito, you know, twins <laughs> separated at birth. Both of us looking at each other. He's like a kind of World Cup winner, Champions League winner, playing the best AC Milan team ever, you know, won all sorts of stuff with Chelsea. Just everything you can possibly win in football. And me. You won, hey, you won League One. Oh, well, League One. You championship. Know, and played seven games. Anyway, so this is, this, is the <laughs> kind of, me. Yeah, this is the kind of level we're talking about. And as we're coming through the security, I felt like it was separated. About, I felt like we were like born from the same family where we're getting on so well. Really? Having such a good crack because he's the loveliest, funniest guy I've ever come across. And then fast forward 24 hours. We'd had a first game. Go for a first night out. And I've got, I'm sitting having a pint with Paul Scholes about four yards, who's my absolute hero. Okay. Like, honestly, I just love Scholes more than I just thought he was the best player in the Premier League. As I'm sitting trying to just, you know, have a chat with him and just get information out of him and have a bit of crack with him. And you'd go too far, you'd be annoying. I would be annoying because <laughs> I want that thirst for knowledge. And I've got Andy Cole over my shoulder trying to put on a Belfast accent going, here, Maka, go and get me another pint of gas in this Irish barn. I'm going, this shit shouldn't be happening. <laughs> but until someone comes along and taps him on the shoulder and goes here, no way you think you're having all this crack. Seriously, come on, it's time for you to leave. You go with so, it. So I'm, I'm there, I'm all over it. You're talking about big names there, big names in the Spurs team when you were trying to break Spurs, through? Spurs, best, best ever, best experience. Who was um, there? So my first day was with Jurgen Klinsmann because we had um, uh, literally they'd bought him after the 1994 World Cup. And we had the, uh, the, yeah, one of the best strikers ever come and played with us. And, and whenever I, I was, you know, a first day on the job in the youth team and you're training with Jurgen Klinsmann, who's just won the World Cup a few years earlier, and you're going, hmm, this is it. But then the other side of that was he drove in the Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah. So that was a bit of the first probably, I don't know, experience of going, not everybody who's the best player ever has to be driving a Mercedes, BMW, you know, all the rest of it just saw a completely different side of being humble, even yeah. though you were the best at what you do. But then another one of my massive heroes and who I made my debut with a couple of years later was Teddy Sheringham. You know, he was, I think he was maybe Golden Boot that year in 94. 
two years later, he was one of the best players in the world when he was up front with him and Shearer in 96. Yep. You know, and, and just having those... It's hard to explain. As a young kid, you're looking up to these players and just like, you know, stars in your eyes going, I would love to do what you're doing. You, I'm watching you every week. You're the, one of the best players in the Premier League. And then he comes in on a Monday morning and he comes over to you and he's gone. Oh, so what happened the weekend, we man? Did you, you know, did you, did you get a girl? Did you, you know, did you do And you're going, this is Teddy Sharon, one of the best players in the Premier League, golden boot winner, coming, England striker, coming over to ask you, did you have a good night out? So that's the kind of stuff where it was just such a, incredible experience but then even you know a little bit later having David Ginola there yeah of just you know especially at that time because he was double player of the year 98 at Spurs when he was there and you know it's 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 just the kind of privileged you know blessed is probably because I'm because I'm Irish Catholic you know blessed is the best way I could describe it because that's all it is it's like going I could have been one of a hundred thousand people different different lads who wanted to do this I'm having this opportunity so I'm just going to enjoy it and try and make the most of it. At least then you were in good company. George Graham didn't want you. He didn't want David Ginola. <laughs> didn't either, want did he? David he told David he was too fat, didn't he? Because <laughs> I think, it was, I think he, his six-pack was probably just too much on the, on the fat test or whatever. So, yeah, I know. But it's just so weird because then that's, that's the kind of stuff where you fast-forward a couple of years and you need to talk about trying to sort of... It's not just about me or it's not just about you and sort of in your, your football... You, affect and impact so many people like your wife or kids or whatever so uh, at 22 whenever I joined Norwich we had a, a French guy called Mark Libra mm. playing with us and we had a great season got the playoff final unfortunately we lost in the final you know to get into the Premier League but Libra offered us to come for a weekend in a beach soccer tournament in Saint-Tropez right. all expenses paid. again this is kind of all expenses paid just common theme and you're like going Yes, absolutely. I'm all over it, mate. Where do I need to be? Do I need to swim there? I can swim. That's okay. Anyway, and so we went there. And so at the time, he goes, listen, you can either bring your girlfriend or you can bring your friend. And I was like, yeah, I'll bring my mate. So I bring my mate, my best mate from Belfast, a guy called Connor. So I go and play in the morning, just having this kind of beach soccer games. And it's really tough, by the way, to try and play it. It's really tough. And um, as we're walking back along the promenade, back to the hotel, I saw, as I'm walking, saw two guys walking towards me. And I, as I'm getting closer, I'm going, I know who that is. Because he had a hat on, but he only had his shorts on and no top. I'm looking. And until eventually he sort of double takes me as he's walking past. And he goes, P? So that was my name for some reason whenever I was at Spurs. P? And I went, oh, hi, David. It's David Ginless walking towards me, towards the where the beach soccer tournament was. <laughs> I went, hi, David. He goes, what are you doing here? I went, oh, I'm just playing this little beach soccer tournament. He goes, that's my tournament. Really? I've organised this. Who you came with? And I told him about Mark Lieber and he says, brilliant. I said, listen, David, this is mate Connor, you know, David. This you, were, you were sensing a night out with David Ginola then, weren't you? Absolutely. I was <laughs> thinking, where can we go tonight? So I was thinking, this is amazing. Connor, meet David, you know, and I, David Ginola, I'll openly admit it's my openly, my first and only male crush. I literally used to see him coming in in the morning and just like, you just wanted to go over and smell him. Just a majestic human being. <laughs> it just, especially at that time, he, he was literally the, probably, you know, one of the most, whatever, attractive guys on the yeah. planet at that stage, all the different adverts and all he was doing. Anyway, so I'm saying, David, this is my friend Connor, who's you know, gone to university at the time. Connor, this is David. Oh, great to see you. And it was obviously, there was a guy standing, sort of an older guy just standing next to him. He went, all right, no problem. He goes, um, P, this is uh, Prince Albert. I went, sorry? 
It's because Prince Albert of Monaco. <laughs> and I go, oh, yeah, hello, if I, how are you doing? You know, what's a crack? And you just go on like, what, what is going on? Surreal. Prince Albert, this is mate Connor from Belfast. <laughs> we having a drink that you on pint you drink in us? No, what's a crack? What's the chances? And, you know, just even something as silly as like, Prince Albert of Monaco is Grace Kelly's son because Grace right. Kelly, the famous Hollywood actress, married the King of Monaco like in the 50s. And you're just going, how, how, does, you, how do you legislate for that? How can this stuff happen? And, you know, it's just, it is so weird. But in terms of, you know, looking back now, the kind of the memories and those kind of things are just, yeah, priceless. First season, uh, not first season, first stint at Norwich. Yeah. Best of your career. Um, it definitely was the most productive, you know, it, it, I think whenever you had my time at Spurs was, you know, because I made my, my debut on, in my first year pro, that was, you know, so amazing because of the team we had and the team you're playing against and, you know, playing away at Villa and then away at Anfield and then, you know, scoring on your home debut against Coventry and Premier League was, was really mind-blowing. But then whenever you have the uh, the chance to go and play up at Norwich City in front of, you know, 24, 25,000 fans. But then also, I think it's the difference of not being a kid coming through and yeah. suddenly being signed as a first-team player that Feels different, people it? just treated you differently. And then, of course, once I then established myself and um, played those kind of 40 games that season, we got to the playoff final in 2002. But that was my first season of actually doing anything because I played, like, I think two games or maybe even one game the first season I got there maybe four or five games the second season but it wasn't until the third season okay. when I was like 22 so it was I'd only played seven or eight games by the time I was 22 so yeah. these days I probably would have been moved on not good enough but then and again going back to uh, the Welsh theme of um, Chris Llewellyn was our kind of star player at the time mm. um, left winger actually that summer Aston Villa tried to ban for three million which was a really high fee for that time because you know there weren't many people going for a lot more than that but yeah for three million pound Chris Llewellyn was our best player he started the season and in the first game of the season he started I didn't play the second game of the season which is our first home game against Man City under Kevin Keegan and he basically got injured after 10 minutes fractured his cheekbone I come on he never played a game for Norwich or if he did it was only a couple of times I then had seven years of playing at Norwich and that's just shows the kind of you know the, the kind of fine margins that kind of careers can be hinged upon at times you're you know you're a humble man from Belfast when it comes to scoring at Premier League grounds not so humble <laughs> it's not me honestly it's not not I don't put that stuff out on social media that is always things like like Norwich said he'll put it out or I'm not talking about that Michael. what are you talking about I don't care about Twitter and stuff what like are you that. talking about I'm then? saying you in person talking about scoring at Old Trafford when was the last time I mentioned that I scored at Old Trafford in the Premier I've... League against Manchester United and Cristiano Ronaldo and Alex Ferguson and Ryan Giggs and Roy Keane nearly got there but he didn't quite get there I haven't seen you for eight years so of course you haven't said it recently <laughs> But honestly, it, do you know what? It's so funny because it, it's it's almost like the people like to kind of hang your hats on certain things, and and there's almost two things for Norwich, and one was a playoff goal against Wolves when I scored a header, um, and then the other one was this kind of the Man United goal. But the problem is we lost. You can't really kind of. <laughs> yeah, I do. Care. Well, two things. Two things. One, 
we lost and because we lost it's like well yeah you scored but didn't make any difference so what's the point of that the second thing is the fact that i had the worst hairstyle ever i had these like blonde highlights and honestly because i show this as my little sort of start of my keynote speech is the video you know to just get a bit of humor going just to get a bit of crack and then also to take a piss out of himself to say but actually david beckham had those blonde highlights at the time so you know us fashionistas (laughs) that we are not quite you leave Norwich, uh, you have a couple of bad years at Luton in terms of what was happening at the club. But again, f- football and life is not all mm-hmm. brilliant. I, mm-hmm. I mean, you've painted a different picture for your life. Uh, I guess you're, <laughs> <laughs> you're the opposite. Sailing through life in a silver boat, <laughs> apparently. That's what my dad says. But no, no, but sometimes different experiences, you know, whether it's relegation or what, is, is good for you. Well, it definitely... It, definitely puts things in perspective and it's funny because you say it but like it's it's you know two terrible years but actually it was two of the best years of my life right it's not funny and that's not a you know it's not hyperbole I'm, I'm serious when I say it because even though the football wasn't great and I hardly played much in the first season second season I played probably 30 games or so that was fine and we actually won the JPT in yeah. our second season Wembley at Wembley yeah but I was dropped I played every round and then was dropped for the final oh. As, Cheers, as you know how difficult that is and you're just going okay but that's only the football side because the other side of that I was living in a place called Harpenden which is near St Albans which is probably the best place I've ever lived Right, it is it's just exceptional in every way everything you could possibly want in a place to live it was there I was having a great time with my friends and my family and everything else that was happening there it was just that work wasn't really going too well but when you put it into perspective, let's take a kind of selfish, self-centered thought processes of footballers that it's not just about me, you know, because everything else in my life was going really, really, really well, except my work. Yeah. But your work's only one part of your life. And if you can, which maybe that I had already started to compartmentalize it at that stage where you're going, well, if you have, say, I don't know, people have loads of things going on, but if you have like, say, 20 things in your life from your health to your fitness to your family to your friends to your social to the holidays to your finance you know all of these things that are going on in your life and my one aspect it wasn't even my career wasn't going bad it was just my it was my job my current job wasn't yeah. going well so okay one out of 20 things aren't going well so what am i focusing on the 19 things that are going really really well or this one little thing down the end which is obviously important but it's not the be all and end all so actually i'm still waking up going still love this place still love my life you know just not getting paid (laughs) because the club didn't pay me for three months (laughs) it's it's strange isn't it because people from the outside will look and think what a bad period for you i had a a norwich really i mean such a successful period for the club back-to-back promotions Mm -hmm. and it looks because i hardly played for norwich that it was a terrible period and you know how you speak with family and friends and they'll slag off Paul Lambert because he was the manager and they assumed that I hate Paul Lambert but the reality is he was a genius yeah. and I best lo- manager I ever played for and I loved my time at Norwich yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. maybe not yeah. on the pitch yeah, yeah, but yeah. in terms of we definitely know, had good nights out we had good nights out <laughs> mate what more is there oh nothing the team was winning so yeah. we had a nice excuse for why we weren't playing yeah. uh, I can't get into the team you know they won again on Saturday yeah. but we had a good time didn't we amazing Absolutely. And again, that's you know, all of those things. Just even the chance of meeting yourself, Gilly, Grant Holt, Wes Houlihan, Ross. You know, you wouldn't have had that, you know, if, if I didn't come back for that kind of that last season. And also winning I only won two medals. One was the 
the championship like 10 years earlier and then the second one's the League One. Brilliant. Like the only things you can sort of look back on and go, that's actually what I did with my career. And one of them was in a, in a season where I hardly played. What's your What's your memories of Paul Lambert? Oh, just, yeah, genius. Not that he's died or anything. No, I know, I know. Well, you know, God rest in peace and all that. But no, he's he was just the best manager and coach and motivator and sparring and, and also credible, you know. Had, you know, Nigel Worthen as a manager and, and had my kind of difficulties with him. But I just never, ever thought of him as like, oh, yeah, I would just do anything for him. Just yeah. didn't have it. Or he, maybe he didn't evoke that in me or, or, his, or his players. But Paul Lambert, he was just going, he's won the Champions League. Absolutely amazing manager, great motivator, knows how to get the best out of people. I just generally like him. And then the funny thing is we only saw really what it was like at the end of the season once the pressure was off. Because he relaxed For the first bit. 10 months, he never cracked the smile. And you're going, this guy's serious. We need to be serious. Yeah. And then suddenly we won the league. Suddenly he turns into like, you know, Peter Kay or Billy Connolly and we're going he's the funniest man I've ever come across in football and you're going where did, where did this come from? Well I think with him it was it was a respect thing you had to earn his mm-hmm. respect mm-hmm. certainly at the beginning you know we can talk about that that opening day defeat 7-1 7-1 he came into the club thinking we were a bunch yeah. he might have thought there was, a, there was good players there but in terms of attitude it all had to change so he had to get rid of a few and it was only after a good few months that he came to respect the players. And, and, mm. and I, I felt that myself towards the end, even though he didn't, never picked me. He might not have thought I was the best player. But I bet you did think you were a good But good people fella. work hard. Good to have around the place. Absolutely. I actually think it was probably me, you and Gilly probably fell into that category of, well, we're not going to play. Probably we're not going to play unless there's obviously injuries. But he knows how important we were for the squad and actually even said that to me whenever, you know, at the end of the season when he was releasing me. And again, probably shows his man management skills. Yeah. He released me and I walked out of the dress, out of the change room going, oh, he's actually a good fella. <laughs> so going, yeah. But every other manager released me. I was like, oh, I hate you, you're terrible and all. But actually, he was brilliant like that. And the majority of lads who wouldn't have played for him, they'd say, ah, he's a, he's a wanker yeah. or yeah. he's this, he's doesn't that. Doesn't think he knows anything about Because he doesn't play you. Yeah. Whereas my opinion, like yours, because he, he helped me get out of Norwich, mm-hmm. basically. I, I had my troubles and he, he, he helped sort it out, um, having a good relationship. I remember you used to try and do extra, didn't you? You know, you used to try and jog around the pitches and that with your headphones in. He wasn't having that, was he? <laughs> he, was, he was, did he find you? <laughs> so this is just, that just sums him up to a T. Like he just, it was his way and that was it. Even if his way from the Monday if you try to do that on the Tuesday, he'd be like, no, no, you have got to do it like this now. So it just whatever he decided, basically, on a whim. So yeah, as many things, this is probably the, the start of me trying to stay in some sort of decent shape. But whenever he um, he said that I wasn't playing very often, you know, he said that he thought that I was starting to look like I was carrying a wee bit of weight. So I was like, right, well, maybe get in and do some fitness work, some fat burning runs, until eventually I was just... It's half seven, eight o'clock in the morning or something. I'm just doing a jog around the training ground, just with my headphones in, just trying to, you know, 45 minute fat burner. As I'm coming past, first time he sort of looked out the canteen window, looked at me, I carried on jogging. Second time I came around, he was outside waiting for me. And he was like, I won't tell you exactly what he called me to stop me, but it was an expletive. And um, he was like, uh, what do you think you're doing? I was like, oh, God, I'm just having a little kind of 45 minute fat burner just to keep myself in shape. And he's like, what's those things in your ears? <laughs> I went, 
what, the headphones? And he goes, yep, 50 quid on my, on, <laughs> on, on my table before you go out to training. I'm going, what? So I'm trying to improve, trying to better myself and stay in shape. And because I didn't do it the way he thinks, he's like, this isn't a holiday, holiday camp, McVeigh. 50 quid. See you later. And to most people listening, that sounds outrageous. And he is a wanker. Absolutely. But the respect that the players had for him yeah. was that if he fined you, whether it was 200 quid yeah, for being stunned. on your mobile phone, you paid him that day. Absolutely, on the day. And that's a special skill to have. Also, what I think he did as well is he did it just so he could tell it in front of everyone else just for the crack. Because yeah. if he goes, I McVeigh had his headphones in and I'm finding 50 quid, everyone else is then absolutely hammering me. So I'm going, I get it. Not only did I get it in my pocket, but then also get it from the boys. And, and he obviously loved that and realised how I, important I was. I guess his method would be that you're, you're jogging. If, you, if you're on the pitch and running, you, you haven't got your headphones in for inspiration. Absolutely. You? absolutely. you know, for that yeah. mental strength. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And that's what he was. That's, that's why he mentioned the holiday camp. He was like, listen... Whenever I was marking Zidane, he didn't have his headphones in that Champions League final, you know, against Juventus for Borussia Dortmund. He didn't have his headphones in, so you don't either. Yeah. So what's what's next for you, Maka? Uh, moving back home, back to Ireland. Uh, it's a long time coming. Probably should have should have done it um, when it was uh, finished playing. But again, a little bit of uh, what was happening in my life or in my head where I was like, if I move back home, I probably won't be able to get a job over or I would struggle there are enough money so it was my lack of belief in myself of coming out of football but obviously now sort of seven or eight years later I'm sort of you know much more confident much more um, relaxed in knowing that I know wherever I'll go I'll, I'll go and you know I'll go and get some work and even if I have to stack shelves at Tesco's it really doesn't matter because okay. ultimately my job is is quite low down my list of priorities now so going so back home to family and friends so that's the main reason to to get back yeah, and yeah, live yeah. amongst family and friends yeah it's just it's you know i've been away since the 16 quarter of a century it's a long time to be um away from your family and there's always a pool there anyway to be around your family and friends and this is more just to kind of it's a good time because it just works out for for kind of yeah everyone i don't know if it's still in publication but you've, you've got a book out haven't you yeah it is. Ironically, give it a little plug, ironically it's not in publication because it's so light and so i spoke to the publishers bloomsbury yeah and unbelievably they're not going to publish it again from what i can see right so until they either say we will republish it and reprint it or they say no we don't want it here you take the rights and you go and publish it yourself so i physically can't sell any copies anymore so not not even not online there's no copies available I bought the last kind of 50 copies whenever I had a, I had a keynote for Grant Thornton in February. And so I phoned up Bloomsbury and I said, how many copies have you got left? They said 50. Like and a kin Kindle stuff like that. You can't even get it. That's the only thing you can get is Kindle. Give it a Literally plug, mate. Kindle. Give it a plug. So it's called The Stupid Footballer is Dead. It's pretty much um, about uh, mental performance in football. But I tried to do a bit more kind of for helping players and trying to, you know, because I thought it was just so undervalued in, in the football and sports world. Um, but then they wanted to make it a bit more autobiographical, which I was not too comfortable with because, you know, I don't think people need to know about my life. It was more about what it can help them because obviously ultimately people just want what they can get out of it. So, so yes, yeah, Super Footballer is Dead. Hopefully it is um, a bit of a kind of a thought-provoking book to try and help not only people who are interested in, in getting better in kind of the sports or football world, but also in their own life. So not only moving home to Ireland, trying to sell a few Kindle books, yeah. stupid footballer is dead. Yeah. Maybe those guys that were in the uh, meeting this morning, 
I'm looking for sponsorship for this podcast. Yeah, mate. so you've got yeah. Barclays in there, you've oh. got NatWest, you've got Grant Thornton, obviously a massive accountancy firm, you've got Marsh, you've got another, yeah, I'll say UK Credit, all those guys, mate. And do you know what? This is sort of why I did the introductions at the start, because when you're sitting in there, and even the, the two guys who I'm on the board with, mm. that's why I said to him, well, give us a little kind of, because he was only just saying what he does now, yeah. and what he does now is nowhere near as credible as what he's done for the last 30 years, because when he went, Oh yeah, so I used to do mergers and acquisitions at KPMG, and then I used to be on the board of this solicitor firm. And you're going, mm, okay, that's a pretty powerful room. So that's why the networking opportunity. So it's a bit of everything all Beautiful. rolled into one. Beautiful. Thank you very much for your time, Maka. Uh, Rosie, can, the little puppy. Can she's... I go and take? It's Nala. Close is from this the Who's land. I don't know. Who oh, Rosie Rosie's is. Gilly's cousin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staying with Gillian Bethan. Oh, yeah, yeah, called yeah, Rosie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nala, yeah. Yeah, Nala. So, honestly, I'm going to have to take her right. So, this is what happens, isn't it? Your life your life starts to get dictated by what, what time the puppy needs to go to the toilet at. Sure does. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Maka. Cheers for man. Top man. And there we have it. Here comes the usual spiel. Big thank you to, to Maka, Paul McVeigh. Fascinating discussing his world uh, the the reasons why he went down this road and he's certainly he's certainly good at what he does he's a good talker old Mac and, and I think it's important to get a a good insight into a different world really uh, you know everybody's aware sports people in particular work so hard at you know improving their phys- physical attributes not many tap into the mind and, and that's what he's doing and that's what he will continue to do and uh, I wish him the best of luck. Real good catching up with him. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, and even if you didn't, give me a rating. Give me a good rating. Uh, leave a little bit of feedback. And uh, subscribe to the podcast. So until next time, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Paul McVeigh. I'm out. Out.